An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And that's from the hot mess of a human being, Mahatma Gandhi. And it has a lot to do with these murders you'll come to see. The Lake Waco murders. This is Jen. This is Becky. And this is Too Close to Home. Welcome back, kids. Welcome. How's your mom and them? We miss John. Well, your beautiful faces. <laughs> that we can't see. That we can't see. I feel you in spirit, though. I do. <laughs> so this is actually part one of a three-part series. Uh when I was writing it, I was thinking, I could probably condense this down to one. And then I kept going. I was like, maybe two. By the end, I was like, definitely we're going to have to do this in three parts. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> there was just so much information. And you really can't leave anything out. Yeah. Without it really, like, setting the tone for this piece. So the piece, like, it's a masterpiece, but it is. Duh, <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> so my sauces is Wikipedia, as always. Bloody Happy Hour, the podcast, episodes 31 and 32, with a bonus episode with attorney Walter Reeves and attorney Russ Hunt. And the major source of this pod, of this episode would be Texas Monthly's The Murders at the Lake by Michael Hall, which was really long. <laughs> and I feel like my eyes crossed many a times reading it, but it was very good. So let's start. On July 13th, 1982, two fishermen looking for a good spot found what looked like a mannequin at a distance, possibly a drunk at the edge of the water near Lake Waco in Spiegelville Park. And as they pulled up, curiously, to see what it was, they quickly realized it was a young man, deceased, with his hands tied around his back, his glasses slightly askew, and his chest covered in stab marks and drenched in dark red blood. The cigarettes still rolled up in his sleeve. So, of course, you know, cops get called out. The investigators arrived, quickly realized that this is Kenneth Franks. He's 18 years old and had been reported missing yesterday. They fan out and searched for Jill Montgomery, who was 17, and Raylene Rice, who was also 17, who were also missing and last seen with Kenneth. Within 75 feet of Kenneth, they discover a young blonde female deep in the grass. And when you're thinking about the grass, it's like, it's not typical what people think for Texas. It's just like flat land and hills, and there's large lots of it that have trees and lots that is just grassy rolling hills. So this is like one of those hills where it's just grass, not a whole lot of trees. So she was naked with the exception of a bra tied around her right leg, arms bound behind her back, and repeated stab wounds to her chest. And within a few yards, the, they found the body of a young brunette female bound by her bent knee peeking up above the grass, which is terrifying. Yeah. I've never been so scared of knees. <laughs> she was naked, gagged, and bound with a slash across her throat and nipples sliced off. She was still wearing her Waxahachie. I think I'm saying that right. I apologize if I'm not. High school class ring. All of them had been bound with shoestrings or pieces of towel, and they had a total of 48 stab wounds together. Some were fatal, but a lot of them were shallow, indicating torture of some sort. And I would like to preface, like, the whole story is, yes, we're going to talk about these victims and their murders, but this case actually goes way beyond that. So this almost feels just like a prologue to a very long novel. 
The investigation is initially headed by Lieutenant Marvin Horton of the Waco Police Department with the exist- with the assistance of David Warm up. <laughs> with the assistance of Detective Ramon Salinas and Patrolman Mike Nicoletti, Truman Simmons, who was with the Pol- Waco Police Department at the time, had been one of the first responders on the scene of the crime. He was also assisted in the investigation in an informal capacity. And he has got quite the reputation. He's a Suedo Sherlock, and he would often work alone and on unexplainable hunches. So, like, makes me think of, like, Columbo or, you know, like, all these detective shows where you have, like, this weird detective, but he's just really good at fucking doing things. That's how his reputation begins. Um, He is really a lone wolf, and he's really unpopular and annoying to fellow police officers. Which, I mean, I would, too, if this motherfucker was showing me up. True. Are you want to make us all a bad? He was not a detective, and he preferred to be a beat cop. He took on difficult cases in his spare time. Apparently, he wasn't didn't have a life. Let me just pick up extra work after work. Thanks. <laughs> I don't want to get paid for it. Don't worry. Maybe, just maybe good on good merit here. Obsessed with true crime like us. I mean, I mean, I write podcasts in my spare time about murders. So. That's true. God damn, good point. Hundred percent for free. <laughs> <laughs> But we 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 get paid in enjoyment. True. Maybe and, he and did too. And hopefully, you, you guys are laughing at us. I mean, with us, not at us. Either way, I don't care. I don't, I don't care. As long as you're laughing, <laughs> please laugh. It's funny. Even leaving the Waco PD to work at the county in the jail to get closer to a suspect is one of his favorite things to do. And that's just creepy, right there. Yeah. He was seen like a bird dog, and nothing could repel him from a case like every th- thriller ever seen. Okay, like. Uh, what's his name? Denzel Washington. You know how like he always plays a character that's like, I'm gonna make this shit fucking happen. That's him. And this is a uh, quote from the book, or from the article. He could feel the violence in the air at a crime scene, and later use that sense to connect the perpetrator to the deed. But he hadn't felt any violence at Spiegelville. These kids, he felt for sure, had been killed somewhere else. You just have a feeling... That's great detective work. Right. No evidence. Are you a psychic? Are you detecting? Just feeling. Mm, My mind tells me (laughs) they were not murdered here. (laughs) The morning after the discovery, it hit the news waves with the images of officers carrying body bags out from the park. For For days, the department's phones rang nonstop as people called in with leads, most of which accounted to nothing. Some claimed that it was members of a biker gang known as the Scorpions and that they had bragged about the killings. Someone else reported that it would of having given a ride to an extremely nervous man with blood on his pants who had been seen walking along a nearby highway on the morning after the bodies were found. First of all, why are we picking up people with blood on their pants? What what year was this? Mm, I want to say it's 86. There you go. That's 82. There you go. Even worse. That's why. But I mean, like, come on now. It was okay in the 80s. Hitchhiking was a regular thing. They probably... well, if somebody's looking a little nervous on the side of the road and they got blood on me, I'm like, blood on them. I'm like, mm-hmm. you just gonna have to keep walking. You throw that thumb out there, buddy. You look... <laughs> it ain't gonna be me. <laughs> One caller reported that they had been doing Indian rituals near the crime scene. 
which I'm so used to hearing satanic, but Indian, like, enough. It's some ritualistic stuff, not usually, like, killing. Yeah, humans. usually it's for good, though. Like, yeah. Like, the rain dance and shit. Right, yeah. For good things. Another said that there was a devil's cult operating the area, you know, because that's, like, just before the satanic panic, mid-satanic panic, I don't know. I know they were in the 80s and 90s. We need to do a podcast on that. Mm, yeah. Investigators surmised that Jill and Kenneth had caught a ride with Raylene to pick up Jill's last check from being a tour guide that spring at the Texas Ranger Museum. They cashed the check at a grocery store, and Kenneth told his father that they were headed to Cone Park, which is across from Spiegelfield Park, which was a local party spot for teens. Jill and Kenneth were old friends from the Methodist home, which was a type of alternative school. People saw them arrive in Raylene's orange Ford Pinto, and the body and the vehicle was still there when the bodies were discovered, and no one had heard or seen anything, apparently. So a little bit about the kids. Kenneth was from Tyler, Texas, and from a broken home. That's how he ended up at the Methodist home. Uh, Jill was born in Waxahachie. She was dyslexic and had a speech impediment and was shy. She liked to skip school because of her difficulties. Also, from a broken home, she ended up in the Methodist home. She dated Kenneth, and her best friend was Gail Kelly. During a visit home, her family finds her with a knife, which she states is for protection. She also starts to fall further away from Kenneth, and as she asks her mother, what do I do if I love someone that's not good for me? And her mother replies to use her head. She decided at that point not to go back to the Methodist home and that she wanted to finish high school in Waxahachie. The visit to get the check and such was basically just to get her items from Waco and complete her move. Raylene was just a good friend who was volunteering to drive her, and that's where they decided they wanted to meet up with Kenneth. So they talked to Kenneth's father, and he said that he had drove out to Midway Park at 8.30 p.m. that night of the murders, which was right across from Cone Park, and hung out till after midnight. He came home to realize that Kenneth had missed curfew. Then he goes to sleep. As all good parents do. Oh, it's not home? Okay. No, fuck it. He gets up at 2.30 in the morning to realize he still wasn't there. At 4 a.m., he drives to Cone Park and finds Raylene's car, but can't locate the kids. He even visited another park to see if he could find the kids. He finds another car that's broken into and calls 911, to which he states his son and his friends are missing and files the report. The report is made, and he starts knocking on his friend's doors, Kenneth's friend's doors, looking for him. Um, Waco PD officers combed the parks repeatedly and interviewed between 150 to 200 people, yet found few clues and no discernible motive. There were some initial suspects, but nothing that they could concretely turn into a case. There were hairs on the body that were un- unidentified, and it went cold from the get-go. We don't have any witnesses. Tends to be the case. So how soon after the kids went missing did they find them? Because he called the cops. They went and searched the or, uh, so I want to say it was probably 48 hours after they were murdered when they were found. Okay. And so they went missing that one night, and then 4 a.m. the next day, he goes looking and calls the cops, and then they're found the following day. Okay. I missed that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does get confusing because I always get confused when you're you're you factor in the times between midnight and 6 a.m. because you keep thinking about it being... That night, the previous day, even though it's the morning, fucked up all about it. One, I'm not even going to be awake at that time. (laughs) That time don't even count to me. (laughs) 
Eight weeks into the case and it being cold, Simons called up, which is that detective Sherlock guy, and he calls up WPD Chief Scott and says he wants to take the charge on the case and can have it solved in a week. Have at it. Yeah. But gradually, knowing the case has no better options, he agrees and assigns police officer Dennis Bayers to assist Simmons, Simons in solving this case. Looking through all the reports, they discover a tip from Lisa Cater, a 17-year-old who had lived at the Methodist home with Ken at the Jill. She initially claimed that she believed that a man named Munir Deeb um, had killed them. Deeb, she said, didn't like Kenneth and became angry at the mere mention of his name. Simons knew Deeb. He was a 23-year-old Jordanian immigrant who who ran the Rainbow Drive-In, a convenience store, which was across the street from the Methodist home. He walked with a limp and went by the the nickname Lucky, (laughs) which sounds very unlucky. (laughs) It was due to... uh, Kenneth had shouted obscenities at Deeb inside his store, calling him Abdul and made fun of his limp. It was due to a crush Deeb had on Gail Kelly, which was um, Jill's best friend at the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, he already had this relationship with Jill, and he's like, I guess, Suedo protecting her. Deeb just had this huge crush on Gail, but she was definitely much more allegiant to Kenneth and Jill. When Deeb learned of the murders, he laughed and said that he was glad that Kenneth died. I'm sorry. Somebody's murdered. I'm not going to say anything but positive shit about that person. You ain't going to find me be a suspect. Wish I could say the same. (laughs) (laughs) If they murdered, I don't care how much I hated it. They got murdered. I'm like, good riddance, but I didn't do it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, 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 that. But I'm not going to be one of those people like, they were the best person I ever knew. And it's like, you say that about everybody when they die. Like, When I die at my funeral, I don't want everybody to sit there. I want everybody to be like, she had a foul mouth. She did a funny podcast. She's a good mom. Like, tell the truth. Yes. I talked like a sailor. And I was a bit much to handle sometimes. I hate it when I see somebody has died. And this happened to me probably like six months ago. Someone I knew that I had worked with had died. And everybody hated this person, made fun of this person. This person was like a pariah in this group, right? Every one of these motherfuckers that I knew had said some shit about this person, was like, oh, my God, R.I.P., you will be missed. Best thing that's ever happened to us. Blah, blah, blah. Like, you fake mother. Just don't say nothing. Just don't say nothing. You don't have to give us any words. You can give condolences. You can just, like, do the cross thing like Catholics do and be like, be done. Bye. Right. I need to lie. (laughs) For real. During questions of Gail Kelly, Simon's out of nowhere asked Kelly, do you realize that you resemble Jill? And confirm, she confirmed, well, yeah, we do look similar, and people have mistaken us for sisters before. At 1 a.m. that night, she calls Simons and screaming, he did it. After Simons calmed her down, and she explained how early in the evening, Deeb had taken her and a friend to a gory movie. Afterward, Deeb had confessed, I did it. I killed them. Though he apologized and said he was joking, Kelly was like, not taking a chance. <laughs> I wouldn't either. I mean, honestly, I would be... I would have been like right on the phone right there, like, excuse me, I need to hit the restroom. Somebody call that one! <laughs> exactly. I would have gotten safely out of harm's reach and then I would have notified the proper right? authorities. <laughs> she warned Simons that Deeb was planning on fleeing the state as the bank was about to foreclose on his business. So he convinced the chief to allow to arrest him as he was a flight risk. They bring Deeb in and they start grilling him, which of course he rebukes the accusation. 
Noticing his very slight build, Simons deduces that he can't have acted alone and reached out to his initial foreman on Deeb, Lisa Cater, to see if she remembers anything else. That's when she mentions a guy named Chili. His real name was David, and he hung around the Rainbow Drive-In. Chili like a chili pepper? Yeah. Awesome. Carry on. <laughs> Sergeant Robert Horton mentions he knew Chili. His name was David Spence. And he had just been arrested with his friend Gilbert Melendez for cutting a teenage boy on the leg and for- forcing him to perform oral sex on Melendez. Just friend things. <laughs> um. Um. Okay. <laughs> what? You haven't done that with your friends before? Um. No. <laughs> so hard. No. The similarities with the sexual assault and the knife violence was too much of a coincidence, and Simons pushes forward on his new lead. Two weeks before the murders, Deeb had taken out an accidental insurance policy that paid $20,000 in the event of her death and listed himself as Kelly's common-law husband. Listen, I... I'm never going to buy life insurance just in case that the person that I buy life insurance on, unless it's myself, you know, <laughs> fucking dies. And I'll be like, that's it. I'm going to fucking jail. <laughs> <laughs> when I showed JJ my new life insurance amount for my new job, there's like three different policies. And when they all had a bit, it's quite a bit of money. And he's just kind of looking at me. I'm like, don't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, if anyone's going to get murdered, it's going to be you, JJ. <laughs> true <laughs> I'm street smart <laughs> Emma already told me nobody would try to kidnap me because she's like well you know they know you get away <laughs> I mean you small and squirrely <laughs> true you talk your way out of it too <laughs> probably or throat punch them and I oh, gouge yeah. them you've been doing that mom thing like how dare you I am so and they're gonna say the d word disappointed I would you're right <laughs> I would I'd make them let me go and then call their mom. <laughs> right? We're going to call your mama. Let's see what your mama says about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Shame. <laughs> so Simon's poses or posits. Simon's posits that this is a case of mistaken identity. That Deeb had hired Chili to kill Gail Kelly and then mistakenly killed Jill instead as they looked so much alike. Then they had to kill Raylene and Kenneth because witnesses. And then they have, uh, thinking they would have Deeb confess, you know, with all this evidence. His family actually lawyers up. They have him take a polygraph, and he passes with flying colors. Which, I mean, we know that those are things are not 100% accurate. They're not. Simons, not letting go of his theory, discovered Chili is in the county jail awaiting trial for the abuse and assault case. This is when he should have realized maybe I need some mental help. Why did I write that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, that'll make more sense later. This is just me, like, reading through this article and then going back and reading it again and making notes and stuff. And I'd be like, first of all, (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because it's like drunk me or something. I mean, I know I was sober when I wrote this, but I don't remember writing some of this. (laughs) Were you? Were you? Oh, this is why. At this point, he left the WPD to work at the county jail with a pay cut so he could get closer to Chile. That's when he should have realized he needed some mental help. That's what I meant. (laughs) Okay. The detective. Yes. Okay. 
Which, I mean... We're on the same page because you lost me for a minute there. I, did, I mean, I lost myself. Shit. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine? First of all, pay cut. I ain't about that. Not about that life. Secondly, I don't... Like, I could never think that I would, you know what I mean, like, want to get that involved in a case yeah. that I would change my entire life around it. Right. That's dangerous. We've seen detective movies, okay, where detectives' lives have spiraled out of control and they're alcoholics, they have ex-wives, and they're all this drama. I don't need that, okay? Don't need it either. Got enough drama all on my own already. Save the drama for your mama. Mm. <laughs> this is funny. Chili warms up. <laughs> <laughs> Chili and Simons had already met when Bayer and him had gone to the jail to speak about this case. He found Chili super friendly and talkative, even getting comfortable enough with him to speak about Simons' own personal life. Chili himself had gotten married at 16, fathered two by 18, divorced by 20, now 24, and a wannabe biker. He was a drinker and a smoker with a wild and violent streak. He offered to help the officers in their investigation despite unknowingly be a, being a suspect. At the time of the murders, he had been working at Burke's Aluminum, right next door to the Rainbow Drive-In. His girlfriend, Christy Jewell, worked in Deeb's store, and Spence had spent, Spence had spent <laughs> many hours there hanging out and playing video games. Spence said he had asked, or Chili, I go back and forth on, like, what do I keep calling him? Chili said he'd ask, have Jewel ask around in the street about the murders. And that's when Sim, Simons begins to work the graveyard sh shift so he could get even closer to Chili. He spends hours talking to him about everything but personal life details to the Lake Waco case, where, which he was actually particularly interested in talking about. Simons will let Chili call his girlfriend for hours, and because he was super friendly, he won over Chili quite easily. He admitted to Chili early on that he was a suspect, and although Chili was insulted, it didn't dissuade him from continually talking to Simons. <laughs> <laughs> Most people are like, oh, I'm going to get my lawyer. He's like, I am insulted, but let me tell you more. <laughs> <laughs> Simon would come into work in his off hours. Again, no, absolutely not. Coming into jail. Definitely not for free. <laughs> no. You better be paying me time and a half. Okay. 100% true. <laughs> He would come into the jail, jail and talk to other inmates in a bid to get more information to criminate Chili, which does pan out in a few ways. An inmate named Kevin McKell told him that Spence had bragged about killing the teenagers. McKell gave Simmons some corroborating details, such as how Kenneth had been bound with shoelaces and Raylene had had a bra tied around her leg. He also reported that Chili had suggested that Gilbert Melendez, Chili's co-perpetrator in the abuse case, had also been involved. Chili knew Melendez through his younger brother, Tony, with whom he had gone to school with. He had other claims that uh, Chili was in a satanic cult, that he had been paid to kill the teens, but he killed the wrong ones. And a foreigner named Lucky had paid him to kill all three because the girl had dishonored him. Dishonor on you, dishonor on your family. <laughs> so this is when lawyers get involved. Which means it's going to get worse. Vic, and there's different ways. Some people call him Fiesel, but his real name is Fazel. He was a cocky young lawyer at 31, and he won, won in a shakeup campaign to become Waco's new DA. His first trial as a lead prosecutor, in fact, was to be Chile's aggravated sexual abuse case. 
He turned down Simon's accusations as jailhouse testimony is hearsay. Thus, it's inadmissible in court. Simon keeps bird-dogging, though. He just can't let this case go. Um, Chili becomes more imbalanced as he and his girlfriend eventually break up, and he has concerns that he suffers from mental instability. Chili is one identity, and Spence is the other, worried that he may have actually committed those crimes. And there's a quote. Uh, Chili says, did I kill them kids? And the deputy says, I think you did. And Chili says, why don't I know? I never understand how that happens so frequently. But it seems like it frequently happens that people are like, did I do it? And I don't know if that's just from the excessive questioning and deprivation of, you know, isolation, food, drink. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'll get you something to eat if you confess. And then right. they hold them. Pretty much waterboarding them with words. Mm-hmm. The following March, Fazell makes a special task force and gets a fresh look at the Blake Waco murders. And of course, he has Simons on despite his less than savory methods. He starts vo- focusing on Gilbert Melendez, Chile's co-defendant from the sexual abuse case. He was 28 and had several prior stints in jail, including one for attempted murder. Freshly pled guilty, he had been sentenced to seven years for the sexual abuse case. Mm. Which is almost like not enough, but making a kid give you oral sex. Anyways, Simons made hit sound like things were heating up in the case and it would be advantageous of him to be the first to speak. After some thought, Melendez thought, decided he would testify in hopes of avoiding the death penalty. He said he and Spence had been riding around in Spence's car, drinking and smoking when they went to Cone Park. That's where they seen the kids, whom Spence lured into the car um, with the promise of beer and weed. Spence raped and stabbed Jill, then Raylene, and then he finally killed Kenneth. He and Melendez drove the bodies to Spiegelville Park and dumped them there, and then they went home. The issue with that is that Melendez states Chili drove a station wagon, yet Chili hadn't bought his station wagon until two weeks after the murders. Mm-hmm. He gave three inconsistent statements, such as different times for when he and Spence had arrived at Cone Park. Uh, Simons thought that the inconsistencies were likely due to Melendez's drug and alcohol abuse. But with the inconsistent statements, plus the fact that Melendez claimed it had been Spence alone who had did all the raping and killing, it made the investigators doubt his claim. Like, oh, and then you didn't do nothing? You were just a witness? <laughs> right. Likely story. <laughs> Melendez took two polygraphs that seemed to confirm his involvement, and he also recanted, recanted his confession entirely, and he was sent to prison. Ned Butler, Ned Butler, is hired as an ADA to try capital cases. He loved forensic odontology. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. With the teeth marks and bites and stuff exactly uh he had used the technique two years prior to solve this uh violent amarillo murder in which the killer had bitten his victim upon first look at the case he asked investigators if there had been any bite marks on the victim he looked at the photo of the victim and said oh for show sure, these are bite marks and then is he that had a direct quote yes direct <laughs> direct for show for show them bite quotes. marks you see them little teethies right there bite marks <laughs> Uh, so he w- ordered a mold be taken of Chili's teeth, and he personally delivered it and the photos to Homer Campbell, a forensic odontologist in Albuquerque. I knew I should have taken that left point of Albuquerque. Who had helped solve the Amarillo case. Campbell was certain 
that Chili's teeth had made the marks. And this sealed Chili's fate. Another suspect, Gilbert Melendez's 24-year-old brother, Tony, he was wanted out of Corpus Christi for robbery and rape. And they used this opportunity to bring him in for questioning about the Lake Waco murders. He insisted he had been in Bryan, Texas, painting apartments the day of the murders, but failed a polygraph. And jailhouse informants claimed they had heard him say that he was at Lake Waco. The investigators were also able to find many witnesses who told of suspicious things Spence had said the previous summer. That he had thought he'd killed someone. For example, that he had raped two girls at the lake. Things like that. On November 21st, 1983, the McLennan County Grand Jury. Man, these words are long and complicated. <laughs> I'm trying hard. Uh, they indicted Deep, Spence, and both Melendez brothers for the murders of the three teenagers. In April, District Judge George Allen made a decision. Chili would be tried first, followed by Gilbert, Tony, and then Deeb. Each man was charged with three counts of capital murder, and each would stand first for the killing of Jill Montgomery, which was the girl that was supposedly the target. Hmm. Confused target. It was supposed to be Gail, Gail but it turned out to be Jill. Chili's lawyers, uh, Russ Hunt and Hayes Fuller, insisted the charges were unfounded. Simon's jailhouse questioning, which is beyond reproach in method, that forensic odontology was admissible in court, but there was no established science behind it. And then after having their motions repeatedly denied by Judge Allen, they sent a 33-page 33 33 letter to the FBI and attorney's office asking for, for help. And this is a quote from that, that letter. An innocent man has been charged with this crime and is very likely going to be convicted in state court and sentenced to death. Six days before Chile's trial, a devastating blow is dealt to his defense. Tony pleads guilty in exchange for a life sentence. Ooh, snap. Right? I'm telling you, this shit is twisty. Twisty turning M. Night Shyamalan style. <laughs> <sighs> Due to Simon's yet again visiting Tony in jail and coercing him into it. In a written confession, he stated he had participated with Spence and Gilbert in raping and killing the teenagers. The trial for Chile begins June 18, 1984. It was a sensational story with news crews crawling all over the Texas town to get a scoop as well as tons of people there to watch, which honestly I would too. Same. Like all the stuff going on with um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. There was a TikTok I saw the other day and it was like... Uh, when you realize you only live 30 minutes from the courthouse where the Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. So they went and were like, look, it's Johnny Depp and everybody's losing their shit and running up and throwing stuff gifts in his car. And then Amber Heard comes through and like, everyone's like, boo. <laughs> <laughs> With, uh, while Raylene's family chose not to attend the trial, Jill and Kenneth's families did with Jill's brother, Brad, who had refused her request for a ride to Waco on the day of her disappearance. So he was feeling some immense guilt. Sure. Uh, Jill's mother had was also scheduled to testify and made herself study the crime scene photos to prepare for what would be set in court. Mm. Right? That I don't know if I could. I mean, you're going to be exposed to it, but at the same time, it's like, ooh. I 100% could not. The state's case was based on the theory that Deeb had hired Spence and the Melendez brothers to kill Kelly for insurance money, but that Spence and the brothers had mistakenly killed Jill because she looked so much like Gail Kelly. They killed Kenneth and Raylene to prevent them from talking. Being a true lawyer, of course, he called 39 witnesses. 
Most of them were hearsay witnesses with similar accusations of I heard them say, I heard this, you heard that, <laughs> my mama told me. <laughs> Most of these statements were just barely fitting the outline of what prosecution had supposed happened to the teens, and every bit of it was circumstantial. Using electronically enhanced autopsy photos, which sounds hor horrifying, just horrible. I don't need them to be enhanced. Thank you. Um, the odontologist testified. Well, it was the 80s, so they probably weren't enhanced too much. Yeah, like enhanced. Look at that great picture. And it's just boxes. <laughs> pixels. So many pixels. <laughs> Is this Minecraft? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're thinking enhanced these days. <laughs> yeah, enhanced these days. Like you could literally see the inside of someone's pupil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and again with the eyeballs. <laughs> Always. They find a way. The odontologist, which I love that word, uh, testified that Spence was the only individual to have a reasonable and medical, reasonable medical and dental certainty, certainty who could have bitten the women. The defense also brought in their own forensic odontologist, love that word, <laughs> who stated that the quality of the photos were too poor, point made, Becky, point made, to make a valid comparison. However, though he couldn't say Spence was, a bi was the biter, he also couldn't exclude him. Well, defense, that doesn't mean shit. Right. The defense fought hard. Their proof. Uh, they pointed out none of the hair or blood found at the crime scene tied to Chili, tied Chili to the murders. They insisted that Deeb had been joking about getting rid of Kelly and that Chili knew it. Um, Chili knew Kelly. So the mistaken identity theory made no sense. Even got an insurance sale, a salesman to explain that Deeb's insurance policy on Kelly was the kind that was used to cover employees in case of accidents. Mm. Accidental death and dismemberment. I got some of that. Although I will say, the being common law husband listed, uh, that is a little odd. Their theory was that the crime could have been committed by two other men, but it was deemed irrelevant and inadmissible by the judge, and they were not able to present it to the jury. That one of them was James Bishop, a former Waco resident who had moved to California right after the murders. Then he had been arrested for raping and attempting to kill two high school girls at a beach. Ronnie Brighton, a man who had been seen in the bloody clothes after a night fishing at the lake. So those were two, according to the defense, more viable suspects than what um, Chile and the rest had been. But they always back then, and still somewhat today, zero in on that one person and ignore everything else. Mm -hmm. And then, like, a decade later, when they never saw it, they're like, you know, we probably should have checked out old Billy Bob. We probably should have looked at all the leads, not just this one. <laughs> After a two-week trial, a panel of jurors found Chili guilty, guilty in less than two hours. Three days later, he was sentenced to the death penalty. Mm. A week later, Simons decided to search the lake once more as Chili's next trial was coming up. And this was for, um, I think, Kenneth was the next one. About 25 yards from the spot where Tony had said Jill was murdered, Simons was suddenly overcome by a strong feeling. Oh, he's getting that sixth sense again, huh? Mm -hmm. He grabbed a stick and he dug deep in the leaves and there in the dirt lay a gold bracelet. Jill's mother and aunt confirmed she had a bracelet like this at one time. Gilbert Melendez called Simons after Chili's verdict and decided to confess because, I mean, he was sentenced to death. He That'll make anybody talk to oh, not yeah. be sentenced. I'm like, all right, what, what do I got to say here so you give me life and don't kill me? Fuck it, whatever. <laughs> in 1985, Gilbert wrote out a 16-page confession, pleaded guilty for two life sentences, and agreed to testify against Steve. 
Deeb's trial began February 25th and lasted 12 days and featured 40 witnesses, many of whom who had also testified against Chile, including one jailhouse informant. Gilbert took the stand to describe the murders and stated that Chile had said Deeb would pay them $5,000 for killing Kelly. You'd have to offer me a whole lot more money. I don't even care for inflation costs, costs for 80s. Uh-uh. I don't know. Let's see what $5,000 was in 1982. Mm, need to know. Hard-hitting questions. A few moments later. Um, it was worth about 15000 Jesus. Even then, no. I mean, I'm going to need you to at least hit $2 million. Because <laughs> taxes are going to take half of it. I'm surprised if you guys can't hear how hard I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> if somebody had $2 million to squander, I'm sure they're going to find Jennifer and you offer it somebody to have like a deduction a of $2 million from their account and their wife's dead. Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, I tell? Jennifer's like, oh, you want me to do it? I'm going to need $2 million. Like, gotcha. <laughs> if I have $2 million show up in my mailbox. <laughs> We're definitely getting our yacht. I'm not telling anybody about anything. We might mysteriously get a yacht. <laughs> and then we can go sell on international waters. And I mean, if you're in international waters all the time, who's we're going to call it the uh, SS Clutch My Pearls. <laughs> <laughs> and who's going to arrest you out there on in international waters? Fuck no, man. Anything yeah. goes out there, son. There's no police to come I'm, get me. There's no I'm extradition wall <laughs> out there. I'm the, I'm the Duchess. I am the, you're the Countess. <laughs> Isn't there like something with if you like kill someone out on international waters about the the difficulty of trying them because technically there's no law. Yeah, there's no jurisdiction over it. Yeah. I'm gonna have to look at that. I remember hearing that somewhere. So it's gonna me, be one of those things I'm gonna lay in my bed at two o'clock in the morning when I can't sleep tonight looking it up. As soon as we get a yacht, we're gonna get life insurance on the guys. <laughs> <laughs> Go out to the Bermuda Thanks, Triangle. Jennifer, I feel like this is going to play at my trial one day. <laughs> going to go to the Bermuda Triangle and blame it on aliens. I plead the fifth. I don't know what she's talking about, y'all. <laughs> Bitch, talk too much. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> After closing arguments in which uh, Fazell listened to the store, likened the store owner to Judas Iscariot, for his dirty hands in the killings, Deeb was found guilty in less than two hours. Like Chili, he was given the death penalty. They don't fuck around in Texas, son. No, they do not. In Chili's second trial, he fa his fate was sealed before he even stepped into the courtroom. The new evidence of the bracelet was entered as conclusive evidence of where the teens, teens were killed. And Tony, in the expectation of help getting help with parole, had agreed to give a more detailed statement and testified against Chili. On the stand, Tony told basically the same story as Gilbert, saying that he and his brother and Spence had killed the teenagers at Cone Park and then loaded the body into Gilbert's truck. The brother's testimony differed on some details. Tony said they partied for two hours before the violence began and that he stabbed Jill. Gilbert said the violence began almost immediately and that Tony stabbed Raylene. But they were consistent in their portrayal of a night characterized by beer, weed, and bloodshed. You had me till the bloodshed. <laughs> I mean, beer, weed, and bloodshed if I'm just listening to it or watching a movie, I'm okay. Yeah, that's true. It's like a Scream-esque thing, you know? Yeah, I don't want to see it in like, real life. Though. Yeah. Fazell loved to antagonize Chili, sending him notes, which I don't know how this isn't like 
like you can't charge him with conduct unbecoming of an officer in court. You're drowning and your lifeguards don't swim. <laughs> he was sending notes like that in court. Jesus. Right? Also, the 80s, they were wild, man. Also, and that said, is the most lame. I survived them. <laughs> the most lame thing I've ever heard of like an attack. You're drowning and your lifeguards don't swim. Your car's crashing and you don't have any uh, seatbelts. Yeah. Come at me, bro. <laughs> what? Come at me. <laughs> he was found guilty and given yet another death sentence. And that's where we'll pick back up uh, when we start hearing how Simons and Fazell become superstars. superstars. So what do you think now after this first chapter? Do you think they're guilty? Oh, no. I don't. I mean, it all makes sense. Like, the one guy hired and they got it mixed up and whatnot, but... It's I, plausible, but... Right. The whole, like, motive makes sense, but I feel like uh, these are not... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, these guys aren't smart enough to do this. Oh, no. They gave him a lot more credit where the credit was due. His name was Chili, for God's sakes. Chili Pepper. Just stop right there. <laughs> got the wrong guy. <laughs> I mean, also, uh, he was Hispanic, so I feel like that was super racist. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to call him Chili. <laughs> Damn, son. 80s were wild. <laughs> yeah, right now I'm not. You know, maybe we get my opinion will change, but right now I'm not feeling like it was them. We'll see. You know I don't. So we got two more parts to go. We'll see where it lands. You guys let us know where, which way it's going. Uh, we'll probably throw a post on social media. Let us know. Oh, we should do a, a survey. Mm, yeah. If I figure it out, guys, there will be one. <laughs> <laughs> I like to play it fast and loose with the Facebooks. Uh, yeah, I'm like a grandma when it comes to the technology. But you do great at TikTok, which, we guys, we do have a TikTok account. Oh, yeah. So definitely, I haven't done one in a couple weeks. I need to get back on it. Well, I mean, I had a lot of life changes this last two weeks, three weeks. That's my job, true. finished school. You're growing up to be such a wonderful young lady. I am. <laughs> I'm a big girl now. <laughs> <laughs> well, until that, until next time, stay safe. Keep your head on a swivel, and don't bring it too close to home. And if you do, don't confess. Yeah, don't bring chili home. Don't bring chili home. Bye. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode of Too Close to Home, don't forget to rate and subscribe to us on most platforms. Follow us on our social media at Too Close Home Pod on Facebook, at Too Close Podcast on Instagram, or if you have your own Too Close to Home experience, shoot us your story at Too Close to Home at Yahoo.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>